Want to get to God's word now? How about we do that? All right. Um, on any uh, list of the top reasons for uh, fights between uh, married couples, uh, money, money fights will always be at or near uh, the top of the list. And it makes sense, of course, because um, of the, the different um, kind of patterns of behavior that we bring into marriage. For example, how many people here you would describe yourself as a spender? You're a spender. Raise your hand. Confess your sin. Raise your hand. Okay? You're a spender. All right? Just like last service, very few of you willing to confess it. Uh, how many people here are savers? Raise your hand if you're a saver, more of a saver. See, those people are willing to admit it. And, and when you start putting the combination of saver, spender together, you know, I mean, obviously, if you get a, if you get a spender with a saver, that's going to create conflict in the marriage, obviously, because the spender is going to be spending money that the saver thinks the couple should be saving. Does that make sense? So it creates conflict in the marriage. When, when you get two spenders that get married, this is a disaster because the line of credit is always right up to the limit, and they argue over, why did you spend that? Because I wanted to spend it on this, right? So two spenders, that's a bit of a disaster. Two savers, when they get married, really the only argument is which thrift store is the best one in town. So it's not much of a conflict, but it still creates some conflict uh, in the marriage. And because money can be such a flashpoint in our homes, it makes sense that a message on finances needs to be part of a family series where we're really trying to lock down how can we have awesome homes. God's plan is for your home to be awesome, and it includes principles of handling the money in a way that pleases God. And God actually has quite a bit to say about it. So we're going to lay down some simple principles here today. Nothing earth shattering, nothing that's terribly new. In fact, uh, everything that I'm going to say here, I've said in other messages and other series along the way. And so we're going to lock all this down from several uh, scripture passages, looking at how to handle the money in a way that pleases God. Does that sound good? All right, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll get started. Uh, Father, thank you again for the privilege uh, that it is to be together in this place. And I, I would hope, God, that we would not take that for granted. I pray that we wouldn't take your word for granted, that we wouldn't just uh, be thinking about the teaching of your word or the time of worship that we've just had or the prayers that we've uh, prayed to you, God, that, that that just wouldn't seem ordinary or just ritualistic to us. But God, that that we're really here pressing in, in the name of Jesus Christ, to have your Holy Spirit come and do something powerful in our lives to change us and transform us and make, it more, make us more like your Son. And so, God, during these moments of looking into your Word, Father, help us to believe the Word, help us to um, hear it and understand it, and, Father, to conform our will to yours today. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, let's get after it. Handling the money in a way that pleases God means having, first, an undivided heart. We need to start, before we get into a lot of practical things, we need to start with uh, the heart. I'm going to have you turn to Matthew chapter 6, and as you're turning there, play a little game here, put a little, uh, a little uh, fill-in-the-blank thing up on the screen here. Uh, money is, you're going to help me fill in the blank, right? Money is the source of so much conflict in the home because one or, one or both of the spouses loves money more than they love God should be the right answer. And, and you're smarter than nine o'clock service that said their spouse and put spouse in there. Don't tell nine o'clock I said that, all right? <laughs> Don't tell them. 
Um, a lot of people think that it should be the spouse in there. That I just happen to love money more than I love my wife. I love money. I love things. I love possessions. I love my stuff more than I love my husband. And really it is because we're getting after the heart here. It has to be about the Lord. We prioritize him. It's going to help us sort out the finances. It's going to bring the marriage close together. In fact, earlier in the series, we talked about uh, the marriage triangle. And you remember that in this marriage triangle, we all start out kind of at a distance from one another when we get married. But as we prioritize our relationship with God, we very naturally come closer together. God himself draws us closer together, and we have greater oneness, greater intimacy in the marriage. Now, as that applies to these principles of finances, if we can lock down, whether you're a spender or you're a saver or something in between those things, if you put the priority on your relationship with God and getting your heart set with him, that will very naturally draw the spenders and the savers together in a closer, more intimate relationship. Now listen, all all of that to say, we have to start with the heart. And again, earlier in the series, we laid down this principle that everything starts with belief. There are no actions that don't start with what we believe. What we believe locked down informs our values, which then informs our attitudes, which then translates into our actions. So if in the case of money now, we'll take this principle, apply it to this very specific situation... If what I believe about money is that God owns it all and I'm just managing it and that there are principles of the scripture that I should follow to honor him, if that's what I believe, then that means I'm going to put value, value on money, a, an appropriate value on money and on possessions, and I'm not going to let them seize my heart. And, and, and that's going to inform my attitudes. Because I have money in its proper place, And the attitudes we saw were the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. So anytime I use money, I'm running it through a grid of love and gentleness and kindness. And is my money being used for that? I'm running it through the grid of self-control. And when I look at how I spend my money and how I save my money and how I handle it, it's self-control, an attitude that's being applied to it. And if I've locked down my beliefs and I've established my values and I know what my attitudes are and they're in line with God's word, then the outflow of that are the behaviors and the actions. I'm spending my money in the right way. I'm saving my money in the right way. I'm giving my money in a way that honors the Lord. All of it is clicking into place every step of the way. Matthew 6, that's where I had you turn. Jesus says this, again, all about the heart. Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. In other words, don't live for now. Don't make your life about the accumulation of possessions and the amassing of wealth because that's eventually going to lead to nothing. It all eventually deteriorates. It's all just temporal. So he gives the alternative in verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor, moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. In other words, put your priority on the kingdom of God. Get your sights set on eternal things. Are you investing in things that are gonna last beyond this life? And the rationale for this, the, the big why is because how you view and manage your money says everything about your spiritual priorities. It says everything about where your heart is. Jesus says as much in verse 21, and this is like one of these underlying this verse moments. For where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be also. Money is the leading indicator of your spiritual life. Money, how you handle it, is the number one spiritual diagnostic according to Jesus. I mean, you might be sitting here right now going, I I wonder how strong I am spiritually. You might think my faith is really strong. I've been walking with Jesus a long time. I'm a really strong Christian. You might be thinking that, but listen, the leading indicator of that, of how strong your faith is, is how you spent your money last week. Not just how much you gave, that's part of it, but how you spent it. It's the leading indicator of your spirituality is whether or not you're saving any money and investing at all. It's what you spend and how you spend and how you're saving and where you're investing and how much you're giving and with what heart. That's how strong you are spiritually. Money possessions point out where our heart is. And it's so easy for these things to become an idol that we worship. And in verses 22 and 23, Jesus makes a point about the inside and the outside matching in our life. And then the big finish in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Underline this, you cannot serve God and money. I mean, Jesus is saying here that you're choosing between two different gods, or you're choosing between God and this idol of your own making. It can't be both. These can't coexist in your life. Your heart has to be for God, or it will be for the things of this world. It will be for money. The Apostle Paul spoke on this too, shedding some light on it with this verse. This is 1 Timothy 6.10. You've heard this before. But the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Money, money itself is not the root of all kinds of evils. Money itself is just a tool. It's just, it's just neutral. It's just a thing. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving for money, craving for wealth, craving for possessions that some have actually wandered away from the faith. There it is again, that spiritual diagnostic. You want to know how well you're doing? Not great if you're all about money. And pierce themselves with many pangs. They're just hurting themselves by focusing so much on money. So if we get this and we decide that God's plan is going to be our plan in our home, then what we'll find is that handling the money in a way that pleases God brings greater oneness, greater harmony, greater intimacy in marriage. Again, as we prioritize the Lord, as we get his heart for all of this, again, thinking about the triangle that just naturally brings husband and wife together in marriage because they prioritize it. God's plan. Now, just in a very practical way here, by, you know, we're just talking about oneness in marriage. When it comes to marriage, one indicator of a singular heart, of, of a heart that is for God and for each other in the marriage this understanding of one flesh that we have going on in a very practical sense. One flesh means, and I know some couples struggle with this, one flesh means one bank account. In marriage, one flesh means one bank account. 
Now, there might be good reasons. There might be an exception or two along the way there. There might be some good reasons to keep the money separate if it's a second marriage later in life or if there's a second marriage and a blended family situation with different kids and custody factors in play. I I get all of that. But if you're just starting out and you're getting married and there's no other exceptional obstacles in the way, one set of books, okay, one bank account, there's no, no, there's no my money, her money, okay, there's no my money, his money, it's just our money, in fact, it's all actually, it's all actually God's money, and you've been entrusted with it uh, to manage it. All right, once the heart is set then, we can get on to this, we can go after an unremarkable plan. And what we know is that, and you've heard this quote from me before, I believe, uh, money is a terrible, this is P.T. Barnum, the circus guy, Money is a terrible master. Money is a terrible master, but an excellent servant. And that plays really well off of Matthew 6 and, um, and what Paul said in 1 Timothy. Money is a terrible master, but an excellent servant. And so the question you, Christian, need to be asking yourself is, of the money that's been entrusted to you, how can this money serve me? That's a great starting question. How... The money that I'm bringing in that just came in the last paycheck, how can that money actually serve me? What's the plan? Well, it's an unremarkable plan because uh, what we hear in God's word is, is so practical, so down to earth, and so right where we live that, that these are the same kind of principles that you would hear if you went out and found a financial counselor and said, look, you know, we just need somebody to help us through our budgeting and to show us how to do this right. The same principles are all there with the possible exception, Christian, that the giving part is a little more demanding on those of us who are the followers of Christ. Does that make sense? But everything else is just fairly practical. That's why it's, it's unremarkable. And so here it is. Let's start with this, an unremarkable plan. Start with um, earn it diligently. Earn it diligently. Uh, Proverbs 6, 6 to 8. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Who loves that word? It's a great word. Go to the ant, O sluggard, you lazy person. Consider her ways and be wise. Do what the ant does. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. It's, listen, for the ants, it's work, 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 and ants are nature's number one example of a strong work ethic. And Paul got after the Thessalonians. He wrote a couple letters to the Thessalonians, and he got after them because they were so excited about Jesus coming back that they went and you know, gave all their clothes away uh, to the Salvation Army and they put on white robes and they went up and sat on their rooftops and they were just like waiting for Jesus to come back and nobody was going to work anymore. And Paul was having none of that and he wrote to them, and this is in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, work with your hands so that you will not be dependent on anyone. He told them, go get a job. Go get a job. Get to work. Start supporting your family said a very similar thing in Galatians chapter 6. The first five verses of Galatians 6 are amazing verses that talk about the burdens of life that we go through and the crushing trials we face. And in that passage, we have that great line that, that we should be bearing one another's burdens. And, 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 and almost everybody's going to face something in their life where it's just so heavy and so crushing to them. 
that they need some friends and some family to come alongside them and help them walk through that trial. That happens to just about everyone. But then right in verse 5 at the end of the passage, he says that each one, nevertheless, each one should bear their own load. Now, he said, you know, bear one another's burdens. And then he said, bear your own load. Two different words. That burden is something heavy and crushing that I need help with. And the load is the normal things of life that every single or every couple needs to bear on their own. And so, you know, you should pay your taxes. You shouldn't expect anyone else to pay your taxes for you. You should uh, find a place that you can live that you can afford, either rent or mortgage. You, you should uh, buy a car or have some means of transportation, and that's on you to get yourself to work. And you should buy your own clothes and put food in your, claw, in your, in, in your cupboard. I mean, you, that's on you, taking care of you and your family. Each one should bear their own load, but we bear one another's burdens, that unmanageable weight that can come around at times. Earn your money, support yourself, support your family. In Matthew 25, Jesus condemned the lazy servant. He's telling the parable of the talents. He condemns the lazy servant for doing nothing. And by by condemning that servant, he's saying the rest of the servants who worked hard, they're to be esteemed. Now, the parenthesis, can I just give the parenthesis on this? Working hard is what we should all do. There are some circumstances where this is not possible for a person, and I'm not speaking to those who may need our help in a more substantive way, but I am speaking to those who can and should be working. Get to work, find a job, support your family, earn your wages diligently. Here's another. Give it generously. It's our unremarkable plan here. Earn it diligently. Give it generously. There was something pretty rough going on in Jerusalem. There was a lot of persecution. The Christians there were losing their jobs and their livelihood and their homes. And they were being heavily persecuted as a result of the gospel. And, and uh, Paul was out there raising money for the church in Jerusalem, for the believers that were there, going around to the churches where, that he had established in Asia Minor and, 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 and Greece and taking offerings for them. And as he was taking this offering... The Macedonians kind of stepped up and Paul esteems the Macedonian believers saying that they had, and this is in 2 Corinthians 8, they had overflowed, listen to this, they had overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Listen to how much they wanted to give. Notice what it says, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part. They considered it a privilege for taking part in the relief of the saints. I mean, they had a heart to give. And every follower of Christ should have a heart to give. And in fact, when you, you think about the rationale, why? Why did these Macedonians feel so compelled to give in this way? Why should we feel the same compulsion? Well, it's all rooted in the heart of what the gospel is all about. Because when I start using words like give and, and offering and, and generosity and sacrifice, all words that we would use to describe our giving. Aren't those all words that can be described or, or used to describe the cross of Christ? And when we start thinking about what, what God the Father did, it, John 3.16 says he loved us so much that he gave his one and only son. He gave, he gave, he gave his one and only son. And that son went to the cross for us. 
He gave his life for us. He gave. It was an offering. It was beyond generous. It was sacrificial to the point of his life. That's the root of all of our giving. That's, that's actually at the heart of all of this. That's why we want to be generous. That's why we have to have a heart to give and be sacrificial about it. Remember that scene in the temple. This is in Luke chapter 21. And, and, and this is the, the regular temple offerings. And people are coming and just giving their gifts. And these wealthy people are coming up. And they're, they're putting in big gifts. And it's kind of noticeable the way it's all happening. And Jesus and his followers are watching this whole scene take place. And then this, this widow comes up after these rich people have all given their offerings. This widow comes up and she, she pops in two pennies, two copper coins. And Jesus making an observation says, and this blows everybody's mind. Jesus says, the widow gave more than everyone else. Because she gave all she had. The rich people gave out of their abundance. They had a lot. They gave some. They walked away. They were still rich. The widow gave everything. And Jesus is esteeming this. as This is the example of giving that we need to have. She put in everything she had. She sacrificed. In God's economy, she gave more than everyone. I want to give like that. I want to find out how I can give like that. And it's not a dollar amount. I mean, people ask the question all the time. How much should I give? How much should I give? How much should I give? It's really between you and God. We talk about 10% or we talk about a tithe. Should it be more? Should it be less? Should I, should I give on my gross? Should I give on my net? People ask these questions all the time. There's no answer. I love, actually, I found this a little while ago and it was part of a previous series I did, but C.S. Lewis said this, and I think this is the best answer. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own. So pause there for a second. So compare yourself to someone who makes the same amount of money that you do. Is your house up to their standard? Is your car up to their standard? Are your vacations up to their standard? In other words, are you keeping up with the Joneses as a Christian? You're keeping up with the non-Christian Joneses. That's what he's saying here. Notice what he says. If our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements is up to the standard common among those with, with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. That's the heart of the gospel. An unremarkable plan, earn it diligently, give it generously. Then uh, notice this next, uh, save it responsibly. Proverbs 13, 7, one pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. And that latter person has saved responsibly. They have invested responsibly. Uh, Proverbs 13.22, I don't have a slide for this one. Proverbs 13.22, the first part says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. 
Okay, in other words, he's, he's uh, had enough to live on in his life. He's saved enough for his own retirement years. And then when he dies, he's actually left something for the next generation. That's responsible saving. That's responsible investing. I mean, think back to those ants again in Proverbs chapter 6. They're harvesting. They're doing all of their hard work during the summer, during the harvest season. And they're bringing it all in so that they have enough saving, okay, saving enough so that when there is no harvest and it's not summer, they can survive. And when it comes to saving or investing, we can break it practically into two categories. We speak to both of these. Short-term saving. This is an emergency fund. This is a house repair. This is a new-to-me car. This is a vacation fund. This is me saving up. I'm not just... I'm not just going to the dealer and picking the nicest car and adding the monthly amount to to my budget. This is me, as far as possible, I know lots of people who do this, this is me saving up my money until I have enough money to buy a used or new car that's going to serve me well. And no car car payments. That's what we're talking about. It's when when, when the furnace breaks. I have money set aside. It's short term. It's house repairs. It's that kind of thing. When I go on vacation, I'm not just, you know, I need to get away. You know, so $5,000 on the line of credit so we can go on a cruise. It's I saved for that. I'm on a cruise because we had the cash. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. That's short term saving. Long term investing. This would be like two to three months of income uh, in case you lose your job or, or become infirm. This is kids' college. This is daughter's wedding. This is uh, retirement. And you set these categories into your budget. You don't dip into one to pay for something else. It's like a, we're saving for our retirement, but we really thought it'd be fun to have a pool. Okay, bad idea. Different, that's a different fund. You can't pull it out. It would be irresponsible to do so. So these are the things you save for with the young income you already have. And so you're not borrowing as far as possible. You're not borrowing for these things. Okay, everybody doing okay? Everybody still with me? A few of you? Good. All right, we'll keep moving on. Unremarkable plan. Earn it diligently. Give it generously. Save it responsibly. Ready for this one? Spend it. Spend it wisely. 1 Timothy 6, uh, 17 Uh, Paul is writing to uh, Timothy. Timothy is the lead pastor, the teaching pastor of the church. Paul's writing a letter to him about things in the church. And and one of the things that Timothy was dealing with is he had wealthy people in his church. Okay, there's some rich people in his church. And that was fine. He He said about them, as for the rich in this present age, the people you have in your church, charge them to not be haughty. You know, tell them not to be proud about the fact that they're rich nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Tell them that their riches aren't the thing. Jesus is the thing. They're they're, they're to have their hopes set on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So far from telling them to divest themselves of their wealth, Paul's not telling Timothy to tell them that. He's just pointing to their pride. He's subtly reminding them that this is all about Jesus, that God gave them everything they have that their hope needs to be on him, to keep their focus on the Lord and on his kingdom and on the mission priorities. But then he says this, it's very interesting right at the end where he says, who richly provides us with everything to, what's the word? Enjoy. 
He, he, he's provided all of this for us to enjoy. God actually wants us to enjoy life, to enjoy the things that he's created in this world, the things that we have worked for. He wants us to enjoy the house or the apartment that we live in. He wants us to enjoy the car that we drive. He wants us to enjoy the vacations we take and the clothes that we have in our closet. He wants us to enjoy all of that. God is not some cosmic killjoy intent on making you a poor and miserable pauper for Jesus. That's not his intent. Any attempt to compel all Christians to live this way, it's legalistic and it's unbiblical. God wants you to enjoy what you've worked for. And because that's true, and because we love Jesus, we want to make sure that whatever we are spending on, it's honoring to him. That it's in line with his will and his ways. And probably the biggest issue here in our culture today is when it comes to spending, is spending what we don't have. We spend what we don't have. We just go out and get more debt. And there's always someone willing to lend you more money. And that's a problem. This past Wednesday, Wednesday's family night at our house. So the six kids, the three couples all come over on Wednesday nights. And um, so I said, this past Wednesday, I said to Jordan and Emily, I said, can you guys give me a ride home from the office? And they said, sure. And they said, but we have to stop at Zare's first and pick up our groceries. And then we have to drop them by the house and then, and then, we'll, and then we'll head over. And I said, well, that's fine. I had no other options. So I, anyway, so I said, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, I could have Ubered. But uh, anyway, so, 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 we, so we take off and we go uh, to Zare's and they, they pull in to the parking lot into the click and collect spot. Okay, so they're going to, they're gonna, literally, they're going to pick up their groceries. You know, this is a millennial thing right here. Okay, so, 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 so they pull in and I, I, I go into a rant because I really like grocery stores. I love grocery shopping. I love Zares. I love Loblaws. Loblaws is like the prettiest store in town to me. I love that store. I want to smell the food. I want to touch the food. I want to see the food. I want to pick the food out. It's the hunter-gatherer in me. I just want to be there. I want to I kill the beast, and I want to bring it home for my family. I mean, that's where I'm at. And the grocery store is like as close as I get to that. So, so I love the grocery store. I love everything about it. And my kids are pulling into the click and collect. Somebody else picked out their food. And I'm going off on them about this, right? And, and so, sure enough, the young lady comes out. And here she, there she comes out. Her cute little vest, you know, and just loads up all the groceries. I mean, he pulled into the spot, Jordan, and he's all like, hey, Siri, call theirs, you know, and they bring out the food. <laughs> Seriously. So as I'm going off of them saying, like, what are you guys doing? Why do you do this? It's so much better in the store. I, I want to go into the store with five things on my list and bring home 11 things in my bag. <laughs> Who's with me? Who likes to do this, right? Thank you. They said, well, Dad, this helps us keep on budget. Oh. <laughs> Mic drop, right? I mean, they just, like, slay me on the spot. And I thank the Lord again that he gave me an illustration the very week I'm preaching on this, right? They just want to stay on budget. Maybe I have a little bit more room in my budget that I can go in there and come home with six extra things. But they don't. 
And so they're living within their means. They have this much to spend. And by just picking out their food on a computer and having someone deliver to the parking lot, they're not looking at all those specials on the end caps. They're not visiting the half price rack. They're not, they, don't, they don't have to be bothered with any of that. So they come up with anything extra. They're just living within their means. And they're spending wisely. So much fun to get schooled by your kids, isn't it? Just so much fun. Now, one more thing, and it relates to this whole deal of debt and spending it wisely. I could have actually, we've gone through four things here under this unremarkable plan, but there could be a fifth one. I, I could have made it this, a debt, eliminate it quickly. Debt, run away from it rapidly. Or debt, slay it completely. This could be, and for some of you, this is a fifth one. Because we're we're literally at the mercy of both the retail and and banking financial industries. They have, listen, they have no interest in you eliminating and avoiding debt. Retail wants you to keep spending because that increases their profits and it's good for their bottom line and their shareholders like that. In fact, the big retailers would really like it if you would come in and use their MasterCard or their Visa card and put all your purchases on there. And then, and then they hope that maybe you'll miss your date or you're only, you'll only pay the minimum payment. And all those interest uh, charges will come into them. Financial services, banks, I don't know if you knew this, but they make the highest portion of their profits on you borrowing. All the other things that they charge you for. I went to the Canadian Bankers Association website. Only sermon prep would send me to such a place. The Canadian Bankers Association website says that 56% of Canadian bank revenues come from something they call net interest income. In other words, you borrow money, they charge you interest on your mortgages, on your loans, and on your lines of credit. Now listen, so they're not your friends. Okay, obviously we need banks in retail, but they are not your friends in this. You have to control how you use both. Again, money is a terrible master. Financial institutions are a terrible master. Your credit cards are a terrible master. The retail industry is a terrible master, but an excellent servant. And when we think about debt, because it would be good to kind of parse this down into two sections, two kinds of debt, so we get some clarity on this. There's good debt, or what we could call investment debt, that you borrow to purchase something that is an asset that's going to appreciate in value, and the best home, uh, example of that is your home. A bad debt would be a consumer debt on consumable items that depreciate in value. That's bad debt, shouldn't do it. Proverbs 22.7 gives us more clarity on the financial institutions and, and on the retail industry. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. And debt flows from this. Okay, Debt flows from this. An inability to control spending. If you have a spending problem, let's call that out for what it is. It's sin. A spending problem is sin. A spending problem is sin that needs to be repented of. You need to agree with God about it and you need to turn from doing it 
And you need to be transformed by the power of the Spirit into not spending in that way. Spending um, in this way is rooted in poor identity. That somehow I don't know who I am in Christ and therefore I think that if I buy this thing or if I buy this thing, that that's going to complete me and that's going to fulfill me and I'll know who I am better. Spending problems, sin is rooted in greed. I just want more. It's rooted in envy. It's rooted in the need to medicate myself that that life is so hard and it's not going my way and I'm going to go and I'm going to get some retail therapy. I'm going to buy something that's going to make me feel better. And in that way, it's no different than drugs or alcohol or pornography or any other addiction that you can get hooked on. Debt is overwhelming us mentally, physically, and spiritually. And it's time to eliminate our enslavement as the followers of Christ. We have to do better on this. We need to get out of debt, stay out of debt, have a budget, stick to it, use cash, cut your credit cards up, get counsel, get an advocate, take a course, get accountability to help with this. Again, it's an addiction. And it takes a certain ruthlessness to overcome this like any other addiction that we can fall prey to. It's time to slay it. Now, I'm, all of that, what I just gave you, is um, really a quick synopsis of a four-part series that I did three years ago called Jesus on Money. And uh, that series, we're going to repost that on social media. It's already available in our sermon archive on the website, but it'll be on social media reposted tomorrow. And that's a four-part series. And if you're sensing, like, there's some things I need to hear, if you go and watch that series, it lays it out in much more detail. All right, if we can get on this plan, hopefully you got all of that, it will result in an undeniable joy. Or in the language of our series, you will have an awesome home because you have chosen to handle your money in a way that is consistent with God's plan for that. Now check out this verse, Proverbs eleven twenty four and 25. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and, and, and one who waters will himself be watered. Now, now obviously the verses deal very specifically with, with generosity and with giving. And it's an indicator of someone who has had his or her finances in order in, allow, in order to allow them to actually give this way. There's the only way you can give generously, the only way you can give sacrificially is if your heart is for God, if you've been earning your money diligently, if you've been, if you've been spending it wisely, if you've been saving it, if all of these things are in order, that allows the giving to be generous and to be sacrificial. And so this verse, while speaking specifically of giving, it's really speaking about a person who has it all happening according to God's plan. And what we looked at above, please don't miss it, it's in a very intentional order. Earn, give, save, spend. Earn, give, save, spend. Too many of us have that order mixed up. We're spending before we give and we're not saving at all. If debt is not a factor and you earn enough, you'll be able to give, save, and spend within your means. And when all of this is in order, you're going to be enriched. You're going to be watered. You're going to be blessed. You're going to have an awesome home. 
The Apostle Paul said it this way. This is in 2 Corinthians 9. The point is this. This, is, this echoes the Proverbs verses. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. I don't know a person who doesn't want to live a bountiful life. And Paul tells us how. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. So I'm not being forced to do this. I really want to. This is flowing out of a heart that loves Jesus. For God loves a cheerful giver. There's the joy. And this is it. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, not just about the money, everything in your life, everything in alignment, you may abound in every good work. Are these not our goals as the followers of Jesus Christ? Is this not what we should be aspiring to? Bountiful, cheerful, grace abounding, all sufficiency. So there's nothing in this life that I could buy right now. There's nothing that I could buy that would increase my joy any more than it's already received from God. I love Jesus so much and my sufficiency is so much in him. There's not a thing in the world that could increase that. I might be happy with something. It might be nice to have it, but it's not increasing my joy. Because I already have the pearl of great price. I already have Jesus. There will be joy in your home. It will be awesome if you handle the money according to God's plan. Amen? All right, let me pray for us. Fathers, we uh, just bow before you. We, um, grateful, I'm grateful for those in the room who have already got a, a great handle on these principles and are living according to what your word has said about all of this and, and have the financial freedom that we've talked about here and are not enslaved at all to this world. I'm grateful for those whose hearts are for you, who are generous and giving and who look out for one another who are funding this mission. Father, I'm grateful for all of that. But God, I would pray for those in the room for whom these principles have struck a chord, who are struggling under a a crushing debt, or who, Father, are, are looking at the possessions of this world to somehow fulfill something inside of them, to, to fill an emptiness. Father, I pray that in, in maybe a, a few hundred conversations right now that you're having with individuals in this room, God, you would be firming up a resolve around these principles, that there would be repentance happening. People would be confessing right down in this moment, I'm not doing it right. Husbands and wives would even be clutching each other's hands with a, a silent commitment to do it differently, to do it your way. So, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fall on all those who are repenting in this moment to empower them to make decisions that need to be made in the coming days, weeks, and months. Father, that we would to a person in this room have the cheer 
the joy, the bountiful blessings. God, that we would be watered by you. That every home represented in this room, whether a single, couples, families, whatever it is, Father, it would be an awesome home. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.